Section 28 of The Art of Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The Art of Letters by Robert Lind. George Meredith, The Anglo-Irish Aspect. Meredith never wrote a novel which was less a novel than Celt and Saxon. It is only a fragment of a book. It is so much a series of essays and sharp character sketches, however, that the untimely fall of the curtain does not greatly trouble us. There is no excitement of plot, no gripping anxiety as to whether this or that pair of lovers will ever reach the altar. Philip O'Donnell and Patrick, his devoted brother, and their caricature relative, the middle-aged Captain Khan, all interest us as they abet each other in the affairs of love or politics, or as they discuss their native country or the temperament of the country which oppresses it. But they are chiefly desirable as performers in an Anglo-Irish fantasia, a Meredithian piece of comic music, with various national anthems, English, Welsh, and Irish, running through and across it in all manner of guises, and producing all manner of agreeable disharmonies. In the beginning, we have Patrick O'Donnell, an enthusiast, a Celt, a Catholic, setting out for the English mansion of the father of Adiante Adister, to find if the girl cannot be pleaded over to reconsider her refusal of his brother Philip. He arrives in the midst of turmoil in the house, the cause of it being a hasty marriage which Adiante, had ambitiously contracted with a hook-nosed foreign prince. Patrick, a broken-hearted proxy, successfully begs her family for a miniature of the girl to take back to his brother, but he falls so deeply in love with her on seeing the portrait that his loyalty to Philip almost wavers when the latter carelessly asks him to leave the miniature on a more or less public table instead of taking it off to the solitude of his own room for a long vigil of adoration. In the rest of the story we have an account of the brothers in the London house of Captain Khan, the happy husband married to a stark English wife of mechanical propriety. A rebellious husband, too, when in the sociable atmosphere of his own upper room, amid the blackened clay pipes and the friendly fumes of whiskey, he sings her praises, while at the same time full of grotesque and whimsical criticisms of all those things, Saxon and more widely human, for which she stands. There is a touch of farce in the relations of these two, aptly symbolized by the bell which rings for Captain Khan and hastens him away from his midnight eloquence with Patrick and Philip. He groaned, I must go. I haven't heard the tinkler for months. It signifies she's cold in her bed. The thing called circulation is unknown to her save by the aid of outward application, and I'm the warming pan, as legitimately as I should be. I'm her husband and her Harvey in one. It is in the house of Captain Khan, it should be added, that Philip and Patrick meet Jane Mattock, the Saxon woman, and the story as we have it ends with Philip invalided home from service in India, and Jane, a victim of love, catching glimpses of the gulfs of bondage, delicious rose-unfolded, foreign. There are nearly three hundred pages of it altogether, some of them as fantastic and lyrical as any that Meredith ever wrote. 
As one reads Celt and Saxon, however, one seems to get an inkling of the reason why Meredith has so often been set down as an obscure author. It is not entirely that he is given to using imagery as the language of explanation, a subtle and personal sort of hieroglyphics. It is chiefly, I think, because there is so little direct painting of men and women in his books. Despite his lyricism, he had something of an X-ray's imagination. The details of the modeling of a face, the interpreting lines and looks, did not fix themselves with preciseness on his vision, enabling him to pass them on to us with the surface reality we generally demand in prose fiction. It is as though he painted some of his men and women upon air. They are elusive for all we know of their mental and spiritual processes. Even though he is at pains to tell us that Diana's hair is dark, we do not at once accept the fact, but are at liberty to go on believing she is a fair woman, for he himself was general rather than insistently particular in his vision of such matters. In the present book, again, we have a glimpse of Adiante in her miniature, this lighted face with the dark raised eyes and abounding auburn tresses, where the contrast of colors was in itself thrilling. The light above beauty distinguishing its noble classic lines and the energy of radiance, like a morning of chivalrous promise in the eyes. And despite the details mentioned, the result is to give us only the lyric aura of the woman where we wanted a design. Ultimately, these women of Meredith's become intensely real to us, the most real women, I think, in English fiction. But before we come to handshaking terms with them, we have sometimes to go to them over bogs and rocky places with the sun in our eyes. Before this, physically, they are apt to be exquisite parts of a landscape, sharers of a lyric beauty with the cherry trees and the purple crocuses. Coming to the substance of the book, the glance from many sides at the Irish and English temperaments, we find Meredith extremely penetrating in his criticism of John Bullishness, but something of a foreigner in his study of the Irish character. The son of an Irishwoman, he chose an Irishwoman as his most conquering heroine, but he writes of the race as one who has known the men and women of it entirely, or almost entirely, in an English setting. A setting, in other words, which shows up their strangeness and any surface eccentricities they may have, but does not give us an ordinary human sense of them. Captain Khan is vital, because Meredith imagined him vitally, but when all is said and done, he is largely a stage Irishman, winking over his whiskey that has paid no excise, a better-born relative of Captain Costigan. Politically, Celt and Saxon seems to be a plea for home rule. Home rule with a view towards a consolidation of the Union. Its diagnosis of the Irish difficulty is one which has long been popular with many intellectual men on this side of the Irish Sea. Meredith sees as the roots of the trouble misunderstanding, want of imagination, want of sympathy. It has always seemed curious to me that intelligent men could persuade themselves that Ireland was chiefly suffering from want of understanding and want of sympathy on the part of England, when all the time her only ailment has been want of liberty. To adapt the organ grinder's motto, sympathy without relief is like mustard without beef. As a matter of fact, Meredith realized this and was a friend to many Irish national movements from the home rule struggle down to the Gaelic League, 
to the latter of which the Irish part of him sent a subscription a year or two ago. He saw things from the point of view of an imperial liberal idealist, however, not of a nationalist. In the result, he did not know the everyday and traditional setting of Irish life sufficiently well to give us an Irish nationalist central figure as winning and heroic, even in his extravagances, as, say, the patriotic Englishman Neville Beauchamp. At the same time, one must be thankful for a book so obviously the work of a great abundant mind, a mind giving out its criticisms like flutters of birds, a heroic intellect always in the service of an ideal liberty, courage and gracious manners, a characteristically island brain that was not yet insular. End of section 28